All right, we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 1, book of Luke, chapter 1. We finished up our study last week into the book of Romans, so it's always kind of fun and exciting to get a chance to uh, start something new. And so uh, we get to start the study in the book of Luke. Now, I always think it's important here, especially when it comes to the Gospels, to every few years go back and hit one of the Gospels. Obviously, when the Lord, through the Spirit, wrote the Bible, he included the Gospel story in there four times with four different takes on it. And I think it's important to every few years go back and understand the life of Jesus, what he did when he walked on this earth. So every few years we try to do that. So we're going to hit the book of Luke here for a while. Now, we talked through Luke before. But it has been about 11 years ago that we talked through the book of Luke. So it's been a while since we've got a chance to be in this book. And it's a wonderful, wonderful book. You know, the Gospels are always so much fun. And sometimes it's tough. You know, people will come up, i got five kids, and, you know, sometimes they'll joke saying, like, which one's your favorite? And someone will say some of the fact of, oh, you can't pick a favorite. It's like, I can pick a favorite on my kids. I don't have a problem doing that, you know. So when it comes to the Gospels, oh, they're all good. Oh, no, Luke's really good. <laughs> you know, right now, right now, Luke's my favorite. <laughs> I really love the book of Luke. It's got so much neat stuff in it, and what a blessing it is. Now, if you've ever studied out the Gospels before, you know that each Gospel usually presents Christ in a different light. Luke really focuses on the humanity of who Jesus is. So as we go through this, we're going to really get a, a study into Jesus, not only as God, obviously, as our Savior, but he also was a human that walked this earth for 33 years. What a fascinating study this is. Now, Luke himself, the Bible tells us that he was a doctor, and he's described by Paul as beloved, a fellow laborer. Luke not only wrote the book of Luke, obviously, but he also wrote the book of Acts. So he wrote a lot of the New Testament here, and it's really especially interesting in the book of Acts. Some of Acts is written from the first-person narrative, which Luke is saying, I was here, I saw this, I did this. And it's a pretty neat thing. Luke's a great guy. Can't wait to meet him when we get a chance to go to heaven. And I hope you're blessed by this study in the book of Luke. So with that being said, let's start. Now, real quick thing, verses 1 through 4 of Luke are very, very wordy. And we'll explain on why that is here in just a little bit. So as we read through verses 1 through 4, if I lose you, we're going to come back. Don't worry. It says in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us. It seemed good to me also, having perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you are instructed. Now, I have to stop a little bit. First off, verse 3, who's this Theophilus guy? And why is he a book of the Bible written to him? In fact, if you know your Bible, Acts is also written to this guy too. This is kind of an interesting thing. What most people believe is that the book of Luke and the book of Acts were actually written, obviously through the Spirit, by the Lord, but written by Luke. Because if you remember how the book of Acts ends, in Acts 28, the book of Acts ends with Paul getting ready to go on trial. And a lot of people believe that the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by Luke as part of, if you will, um, the account of the going on to the trial. And these were going to be court documents. And these court documents would explain, first off, who Jesus was, this Christianity thing, hence the book of Luke, and how this impacted Paul, hence the book of Acts. And this Theophilus here, many people believe, was maybe a Roman official at Paul's trial, maybe a lawyer, etc. And that's kind of the background of who he was. So when you read verses 1 through 4, if it sounds like some type of legalese, it really actually is. And so what you possibly could see here is a background of what's going on. Now, with that being said, let's look at what he says here, because I find this fascinating. Note the progression. Look at verse 2. First thing you see here is this idea of being ministers of the Word. Some of your translations say servants of the Word. We have a biblical obligation as Christians to know 
God's Word. We're not against topicals out here. We're not against studies like that. But the thing we really believe and teach is we like this idea of verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter through the Bible. We believe that's where you really get the full context of God's Word. We just finished up um, going through the entire New Testament. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to start the New Testament again. Because that's what we do. And once we finish the book of Luke, we're going to pick another book in the Bible. Once we finish First Peter here on Wednesday nights, we're going to pick another book of the Bible and go through it. Now, obviously, there's times where you have topicals, etc. But generally speaking, we like verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. And that is what we look at here at verse 2, of being a servant of the Word, an understanding of what God's Word is. And then that Word is then what? Verse 2, it's delivered then to us. So we take the word, and then we deliver it to you, and then you take that word, and you go deliver it to other people. Now you can sit there and talk about all the wisdom and knowledge you have, but that's nothing. It's God's word. Anytime someone calls me or emails me and they're going through a difficult time, we try to do two things with them. First off, pray with them to encourage them, and number two, I'll give them scriptures. Because I realize God's word won't return void. Those scriptures will hopefully encourage them, uplift them, and point them in the right direction. I'll tell them, hey, go read this every morning. Go read, reread read this. Why? Because I believe that that's what God's word does. It's our servant of the word. It's delivered to us. Then what do we do? Verse 3. The goal is to have perfect understanding of God's word. That means carefully investigated, as one translation puts it. That we know it. 2 Timothy 2.15 says we need to rightly divide the word of truth. There is a responsibility as Christians to know and understand God's word. And then lastly, verse 4, that we know it and pass it along. Look at verse 4, with certainty. And we instruct other people, as verse 4 says. So let's put this together. We're a servant of the word. It's been delivered to us. We pass it on to other people. We have a good understanding of God's word, verse 3. Then verse 4, we instruct other people with it. That's what we're doing right now. We're instructing you in the book of Luke. And then as you leave, hopefully you take the points that you heard today and you go instruct other people in God's word. The purpose of this is just not for you to come and sit and be fed and say, oh, that was good and go home. Learn, grow, and then you can go pass this along to other people. That's the purpose of it. And that is why we spend this time going in it, to know it, to deliver it, to instruct it, and to pass it on. Now let's build on this. Can you go to Psalm 1 with me, please? Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is probably my favorite psalm of all the psalms, which is kind of a big statement when you stop and you think that there's 150 psalms. I love Psalm 1. A lot of times people hear a message like this. We start talking about the idea of God's Word, and everybody's like, yeah, I get it. I know what I'm supposed to be in God's Word. But when I read it and study it, I find it boring. When I get into it, I don't understand it. But let's talk about why we're getting into God's Word here. Psalm 1, quick little psalm. It's only six verses. Verse 1 of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Now the truth of the matter is most of us want verse 3. I want to be planted by the water of God. Verse 3, I want to bring forth fruit for God. Verse 3, I don't want my leaf to wither. All of you have been going through difficult times. Some of you have come in today and it's been a struggle to get here and you're not feeling really vibrant. Your leaf is withering. God's word encourages that. And look at the last part of verse 3. I want to prosper for God. We want verse 3. Planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth fruit for God, not withering in difficult times, and prospering. That's what we want. Okay, well, how do we get that? Verse 2. You delight in the law of the Lord and you meditate day and night. See, if you go to the world... And you ask them how to become successful. I doubt many people are going to quote Psalm 1, verse 2. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord and meditate day and night. 
No, you don't understand. I want to be successful and prosperous. Oh, you, you will, verse 3, and whatever he does shall prosper for God. You, you will. No, you don't understand. I really want to do things for the Lord. You, you will. You'll bring forth fruit for the Lord, verse 3, when you delight yourself in the law of the Lord and meditate day and night. See those two words there, delight and meditate. Now, meditate carries a pretty serious connotation. You're not just reading it. A lot of people just read. I know people that have a daily devotion, and they just read it. It's just homework. Read it and get through it. No, meditate, to stop, to sit, to chew, to contemplate what God is trying to say. To delight as you go into this conversation with God through his word, and you say, I want to grow and know. I I read a great devotional a while ago, and one of the things that really hit me was when the pastor says, when you go spend time with God, expect to hear something. See, a lot of times when I go do devotions, I just said, okay, let's just read. Then I get nothing out of it. No, when I go into God's word now, I expect to hear something. I expect him to speak through his word. So I go in there delighting that he's going to speak, and I'm going to meditate and chew on it to hear what he has to say. You know, out here at church, we try to have uh, little meetings uh, on Tuesdays, and we try to get the staff together. And when we first started doing this, we used to meet in my office. So Nancy would be there, Tony would be there, Rich would be there, and I would be there. We'd be doing these meetings. And I noticed that when Tony and Nancy came into the staff meetings, they came in with a pad and a pen. And during the meeting, they would take notes. And I thought, why, why are they taking notes? And then I realized they were taking notes because things were being said that was important. And I remember the first meeting that I really felt kind of embarrassed, so I just grabbed a piece of scrap paper and pretended to write things down because I wanted to look like I knew what I was doing too. But the point is, when you go into that meeting, the assumption is, hey, we're getting together. Hey, since we're getting together, something is probably important going to be said, and we probably need to write it down. There's an expectation of going in there with your pad and your pen saying, I need to write down things that are important. A lot of times you'll see me, I carry one of these with me. And if anybody comes up to me and says, hey, pray for my uncle so-and-so, I'm going to write it down right then. Someone comes up and says, I got a doctor's appointment next Wednesday. I'm going to write it down right then. Because if you're telling me to me, that means it's important. And I want to write that down. So when I go into God's word, I go into God's word with a pen in my hand, expecting him to say something. I expect when I read a verse, for that verse to hit me, and then I underline it, and I mark it, because it's an important verse. If I have time, and I have the right location to do it, I like to sit down with my journal and say, boy, I really like that verse. I'm going to actually rewrite that verse out. I'll make a note to say, I'm going to go copy that verse now, and print that out, and stick that on my fridge, because I go into his word, delighting in what he's going to tell me, and expecting him to say something to me that's important. So when I go into God's word, I'm delighting and meditating. And when that happens, you know what happens in verse 3. I'm planted by the water, I'm bringing forth fruit, I'm not withering, and I'm prospering in God. So with that being said, what Luke is trying to tell us here in these first few verses of this book, God's word's important. So with that introduction, let's see what else he has to say. Let's move on now. Luke 1, verse 5. There were in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. They were both well advanced in years. Now a little bit of background here, verse 5, a little history. Herod Herod ruled for about 30 plus years. He ruled over Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Um, Now if you're thinking, well, is this the same Herod we're going to read about later on in Luke? Is this the same Herod in the book of Acts? No, there are many different Herods. This was the Herod that ruled and reigned a little over 2,000 years ago, um, and that's who that was there. So that's Herod, and he was the ruler of this, appointed by Rome to rule over this area. Now, Zacharias is a priest. He's of the division of Abijah. A little bit of background here. There are 24 divisions of priests. Each one would serve a couple weeks a year in the temple. So he is of one of 24 divisions. So that's his division. That's his shift, if you will. And he was one of those 24 groups there, and that was of Abijah, and we're introduced to his wife, Elizabeth. Now look at verse 6. What a compliment. They were righteous before God, 
walking in all the commandments and ordinances and blameless. Can you imagine if that's how people described you? Righteous, walking in all the commandments and ordinances and blameless. Hey, what do you think of James? He's righteous. He's blameless. In fact, he's always walking in what God tells him to do. That is one of the best compliments I've ever seen in the Bible, verse 6, of any couple. And I cannot stress that to you enough. What an amazing compliment to give. But, verse 7, they don't have any kids. You know what that shows me? You can do everything spiritually right and you still won't get everything you want in life. You can do everything right and your car will still break down. You can do everything right and you still may get laid off. You may do everything right and you may still get the bad diagnosis at doctor. But you don't understand. I'm righteous, verse 6. I'm walking in all the commandments of an ordinance of the Lord, and I'm blameless. These things don't happen to super saints. They happen to mediocre Christians or non-believers that God's just trying to get their attention. No, they don't. See, God is going to use this as for an amazing purpose for Zacharias and Elizabeth. He is. And if you are walking in all the commandments of God, and if you're walking in righteousness, and you're blameless before the Lord in verse 6, then you reach a point where you say, whatever happens in my life, I trust that there's a bigger picture even though I don't see it. And you have to trust that, and that's what they have to trust too. So what's the bigger picture for them? Well, verse 8. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, that's kind of a fascinating thing. A little bit of background on this. What would happen once again is if you were one of the divisions of priests, there was 24, you would work two weeks out of the year. Two weeks out of the year, you would go to the temple and work. Now, you would do other stuff during the rest of the year, but there was two weeks you would go to the temple and actually serve at the temple. So he's doing one of his two weeks. Now, this incense, they would light incense every morning and every evening, which represented prayers going up to God. This is a big deal. And so this was his turn to go do this. Now, you've got to remember, at this time, there's probably somewhere between fifteen to 20,000 priests. 15 to 20,000 priests, divided up into 24 different divisions, and this, you only work two weeks out of the year at the temple. So when it's your turn to do this, this is literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, if that. Don't, don't just read over these verses and say, okay, so big deal, he, he lit the incense at the temple. No. He works two weeks out of the year at the temple. He's one of 15 to 20,000 priests. He only of those two weeks, only one of his group gets to do it. This is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. So at his biggest moment in life, what happens then? Verse 11, an angel of the Lord appears to him. I don't know why we as Christians still think that there's coincidences in the world. This is a God thing. I used to fight it. When I first got saved, I would have my schedule and things I wanted to do, and then something would pop up. I'd run into something or get a phone call, and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that, but i got these things to do. And I remember the Lord saying, James, it's not your schedule, it's my schedule. And what happens here is Zacharias is going in saying, I'm going to light the incense, I'm going to do this. Can you imagine? He's nervous. If I was in his shoes right now, I'd be saying, don't screw up, don't screw up. This is a big deal. So in this big, big deal, that's when the angel of the Lord appears to him. Obviously, Zacharias, he handles it real well. Verse 12, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Now, the reason I bring this up is because nearly... And I think nearly every time an angel appears to someone in the Bible, do you remember what their reaction is? They freak out. The Bible doesn't say freak out, but that's what they do. Daniel, great man of God in the book of Daniel, he freaked out so much he fainted. John in the book of Revelation felt the feet trembling. So I just find it fascinating when I read stories of people nowadays when an angel appears to them, they have this really ho-hum conversation like, oh, hey, you're an angel. Yeah, I came from God to tell you something. Oh, that's really cool. Because what happens here in the Bible, these people are overwhelmed. 
an angel appeared to him while he's just trying to light the incense and not screw this up. This is a big deal. This is his big day. This is the culmination of his whole career as a priest. And this is when the angel appears to him. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. And as I always say, if the angel has to say, Do not be afraid, why does he have to say that? Because Zacharias was afraid. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. We're introduced to who John the Baptist is here. Now look at verse 13. Your prayer is heard. Now what prayer is that? Well, it could have been the daily prayers that they prayed at the temple. My personal opinion and the context of the chapter, I think that prayer is a prayer for a child. Now, here's the problem, though. They were well advanced in years, the Bible says, according to verse 7. These people were old. Now, I don't know how old is old, but when the Bible says you're well advanced in years, I think that's pretty old. And so this prayer is heard. Verse 13, isn't that comforting to know that every prayer you prayed, God has not ignored? Now, he may not have said yes to everything. He may have said no in wisdom. But have you ever had something you prayed for and prayed for and prayed for and nothing ever happened? And you reach a point of saying, why pray anymore? You know, we don't know for sure, but do you think maybe Zacharias and Elizabeth reached a point of saying, let's, let's be done praying for a kid? You know, if you've ever been around a woman who wants to have a child that can't, there, there's such an emptiness and a loneliness in there. Did Elizabeth reach a point in her life saying, okay, listen, I'm, I'm obviously too old. This is not what God's plan is for us. This is not what he has in store for us. Or did they keep praying? Trusting that no matter what, that baby could come. My personal opinion, because here in a few verses, the uh, angel admonishes Zacharias for his lack of faith. My personal opinion is I think they lost faith a little bit. I don't think they expected this. They maybe gave up. And I always tell people, don't give up. Oh, you don't understand, Pastor. I've been praying for this for so long. Obviously, they did too. No, no, not, not this one. This, this one won't work. Why won't this one work? Well, this one won't work because obviously this is not what God wants. Or if it was what he wants, he would have done it right away because that's how it works. You need a job, you pray, and what happens in five minutes? It just That's just the way it works. It doesn't work that way. That's why the Bible talks about being diligent in prayer. We'll get to the faith thing here in a little bit more, but just keep this in the back of your mind. So we're introduced to who John is. Well, what's John going to be like? Verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A little bit of background here. If you're taking notes, write this down. Luke 7.28. Luke 7.28. We'll get to this in a few weeks. Jesus comes out and says, kind of paraphrased here, that John was the greatest human that ever lived. you realize how big of a statement that is? God says John was the greatest human that ever lived. That's huge. That's a huge statement. I heard a teaching years ago where the pastor said, if Jesus said John was the greatest human that ever lived, he goes, should we not be studying his life to find out what made him so great? What did he do that made him so great? He, he died in his early 30s. It's not like he lived this really, really long life. What did he do that was so great? Well, four things, verses 14 through 17. Let's look at the four things that John's going to do. First one in verse 14, he's going to bring joy to people. That's a pretty good thing. Verse 15, he's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. That's a real good thing. Now, note it says, stay away from the, uh, from the wine. Some people thought maybe it was a Nazarite vow or something like that. We don't know for sure. But it says in Ephesians 5.18, it says, do not get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So the way I take verse 15 is stay away from the junk in life. There's going to be stuff that's going to pull you away from the Lord. There's going to be stuff that's going to pull you down. Stay away from it. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. If your focus is on the Lord, your focus won't be on the junk of life, and you'll be full of the Spirit. What else does he do that's great? Verse 16. 
He's going to lead people to Jesus, to the Lord. In verse 17, he's going to prepare people to meet Christ. That's pretty successful. He's going to bring joy, verse 14. Verse 15, he's going to stay away from the junk of the world and be full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, he's going to lead people to Christ. And verse 17, he's going to prepare people to meet Christ. I'm telling you right now, if you'd go into the world and say, what makes a successful man? I don't think any of those four points would ever be mentioned. But we are under a different standard than what the world is. The successfulness of the world, I don't know, big house, maybe two houses, a few cars, six-figure income, that's successful. Well, according to the Lord, successful is bringing joy to people, being full of the Spirit, leading people to Christ, and preparing people to meet Christ. John lived in the wilderness with camel's hair or whatever, I can't remember, and he ate locusts covered in honey. From a materialistic standard, John was not successful in any way whatsoever. We have to stop at this point and say, who am I trying to impress? The world or the Lord? Jesus was impressed with John the Baptist. That is what our standard should be for us. Lord, I want to be successful. So I need to go read all these books on how to do it, and I need to study, and I need to do this, and dress this way, and speak this way. No, you don't. Bring joy before the Spirit, lead people to Christ, and prepare people to meet Christ. Then you will be successful in the eyes of heaven. That's what John the Baptist was. So here's this amazing introduction to who John is. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Verse 19, And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Quick stop right here. There's only three angels mentioned by name in the Bible. Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. You will find at the checkout at Walmart. There's a great book that mentions probably 70 angels' names. I'm sure it's really studied out and full of lots of scripture. It's also a bunch of baloney. There's three angels' names, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. You've got to stick to the scriptures on what they say about these things. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. I, I love the honesty of the Bible. We were talking at the 830 service. How do we know the scripture is God's word? And there's lots of reasons why. But one of the reasons I like is if mankind wrote this, do you think they would include things like that in verse 18? Do you really think if David was writing the Bible, he would mention Bathsheba? Don't you think he'd skip over that whole thing? Let me tell you the story of Goliath one more time. You know, the Bible presents humanity in all its evilness and sin. Verse 18 as a relatable verse for me. Because if I wouldn't have verse 18, 19, and 20, be like, okay, that's Zacharias. He's blameless, and he obeys all the commandments. He's righteous. His kid prepares the path for Jesus. I read verse 18. It's like, oh, I can relate to that. He has a moment of not faith. He has a moment of weakness. He has a moment of, are you sure? That's relatable to me. And so what happens in this moment, he stops and says, we're old. Are you forgetting this? We're old. He doesn't just stop and say, wow, answered prayer, decades of answered prayer. We've been praying for this and we trusted in faith that God would bring us a baby and we never doubted. No, verse 18, we're old. Boy, guys, we lack faith a lot of times, don't we? We pray over something one time, it doesn't happen, and say, well, what's the point of praying? It doesn't do any good. I prayed and nothing changed. I prayed for that job and it didn't work out. I prayed for that girl and we didn't start dating. I prayed for her to be healed and it didn't happen. So obviously prayer just doesn't work. Boy, faith. Faith in the dark times. I wish I could say I never doubted things, but I'd be lying. I remember years ago there was a situation where there was a guy that we'd been praying for for years come to know the Lord. I mean, this is one of those Paul moments of Saul to Paul, that if this guy got saved, it would be life-changing. So I got a phone call from somebody saying, hey, did you hear so-and-so got saved? My response, no, he didn't. That was my response. No, he did. No, he didn't. No. Where was my faith? People come up to me. 
And they'll have a hard time in life, and they'll explain the situation and say, we need to pray. And they say, go ahead and pray. Nothing's going to change. Nothing ever happens when I pray. It happens for other people, but it doesn't happen when I pray. My first thought is, well, of course it doesn't. You don't have any faith. See, faith is the trigger that fires the gun. And so what happens is, if you don't have faith, and I don't want to speak for the Lord and not saying, thus saith the Lord, but I almost wonder if God sits up there in heaven and says, well, wait a second, you don't even think I can do it? Then why would I do it? Faith is believing that the Lord can still move mountains. And so what happens is when somebody comes up and says, well, you know what, I always pray for the job and I don't get it. I always pray for things to work out and it doesn't happen. I always pray for the right spouse and it never works out. So obviously it just doesn't work out, so why even pray? You don't have any faith. Of course it doesn't work out because you're not really praying. You're not really seeking the Lord. You're not really going to the Lord in faith and saying, Lord, I am laying my life down at your feet and I am such a worthless something here. I, I'm nothing. Please, Lord, because only you can do this. See, this story wouldn't be that exciting if the Bible says that Zacharias was 28 years old and they went in and he's going to have a baby. Okay, what's the big deal? He was well advanced in years. So all those years of praying, praying, praying were not ignored, were not forgotten. God said, this kid's important. This kid's special. So therefore, I'm going to make his entrance in the world a miracle to make sure you know this is not you. Boy, Zacharias and Elizabeth, you guys did a great job raising your kid. No, this is a God thing. So he has to do it in his way. This is the thing about the Lord. I like God. You know why? He's a little dramatic. I mean, he could have just appeared to Zacharias. No, I'm going to do it on the day of your, your life or you're at the temple. This is a huge day. I'm going to send an angel to do it. And I'm going to wait till you're really old. And to throw a little icing on the cake since you didn't believe me, verse 20, I'm going to make you mute. You know what that means? That means when you lack faith, you lose your witness. He's got nothing to say. And this is what happens then, to be quite honest. When we lose faith in prayer and the Lord working, we no longer care about witnessing because you know what? You're not going to go up to your coworkers and they're struggling saying, you know what, I'll really pray for you. You know why? Because you don't believe prayer works. So why are you going to ask somebody else to pray? You don't believe that God can step into your life and fix the mess. So why are you going to tell your coworkers that God can't? You're mute. Because of lack of faith, there's no longer a witness. So when Zacharias didn't believe, he became mute. And that's what happens when we don't believe. Verse 21, And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. I almost see verse 21 as these priests saying, Come on, old man. You know, I mean, seriously. We're all waiting. We can't go home until you finish this up. Verse 22, But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me on the day when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. What a neat story. What a neat introduction to who John the Baptist is, because then next week we get to learn about the introduction to who Jesus is. And if you didn't know this, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, born only about probably five, six months apart from each other. It's neat to see how God intertwined these two people in their lives. What a neat thing this is to see. Now, you know I like names, and I like what names mean. Zacharias's name means God has remembered, as Elizabeth's name means oath of God. Now put those together. Zacharias, Elizabeth. God has remembered the oath of God. God remembered. Now Zacharias may have given up. Maybe Elizabeth gave up. Maybe you've given up. But God has remembered the promise of God. I love that. I absolutely love that. I don't know what you're facing today, but I know this. Keep praying through it. Even though you don't see fruit, keep praying through it. Stick to the word. The word will make those leaves that are withering grow strong. will produce fruit. You'll be prosperous in God. Look at the success, excuse me, successful life of John the Baptist. Bring joy to people. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Stay away from junk. Lead people to Jesus. Prepare people to meet Jesus. 
and you're successful in the eyes of heaven. What an amazing man John the Baptist will be, coming from an amazing set of parents, and we really get to see how God brings this all together over the next few chapters. And I tell you what an absolute blessing this is as this all comes together here. Marv and Callie, if you guys want to come forward for the final song.